You are now entering the spoiler zone. The following podcast contains explicit plot details and pockets of profanity. You have been warned. The Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in wine and space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Hello and welcome to the first in a new series of podcasts called the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And we've decided to do this because periodically Simon and I get together and we have weekends where we just trawl through old episodes of television, uh, mainly science fiction and primarily Doctor Who to be quite honest, although we've started varying that a bit. Simon, you've said that there is... How do you put it, a dearth of podcasts that deal with anything other than Doctor Who? Yeah, I mean, there, there, are, there are a few very good podcasts um, around the archives, from the archive, other ones that I listen to. There are a couple of others as well. But compared to the, the sheer volume of fan traffic that there is about Doctor Who, then other equally worthy TV series kind of get left out in the cold a bit. And that, that's what we're aiming to redress a little bit. Now, we met 12 years ago? 13 now. 13 yeah. years ago um, at the screening of Rose in the one of the big pubs in yeah, Liverpool the City Centre. First episode um, of the new Doctor Who. Because yeah. I, I was a member of the Liverpool Doctor Who fan group and you were a member of the Preston Doctor Who fan group and you came to the big lights of Liverpool to... Um, yes, and it was that was uh, a friendship at, at first handshake, I seem to remember. That was a fellow Martian moment, I think. We both... Uh, got on from the word go and, and hmm. been good friends ever since and every so often we get together for started off Doctor Who predominantly and then my interest in some of the other classics I of, seem to remember um, one of the first things that you brought that wasn't Doctor Who uh, there was certainly Our House and then there was Misadventure with Hattie Jakes I remember that, those two being the that, first uh, I'm not sure how our house was, because um, I don't think it's been released on DVD that long. You had a recording of it somehow. That was ages ago. That was years and years ago that you brought that. Mis- Misadventure, I, I um, had a recording of, or the one surviving episode of Misadventure. So we could we could have watched that a long time ago. I'm, I'm not exactly certain when they'd, um, the DVD of Our House came out. I don't think it was an official, I think it was a bootleg. No, I, I, I didn't have anything from Our House until the DVD came out. Right, it must be longer ago though, because this this uh, the, well, actually we're recording in my living room because there's a a nice big screen and surround sound. Um, but in those days, I had carpet, and I've not had carpet for eight years, yeah. mm. so it's it's quite a while. I know the first Doctor Who episode we watched was the Satan Pit. Yes, it was, which we both have a, a bit of a soft spot for. But we thought we'd start off today. The The podcasts themselves are going to run along the format of the Doctor Who episodes that we watch and record. They will have full commentaries because most people are uh, reasonably familiar with the episodes themselves and there's plenty to say. The lesser known TV, we've decided rather than attempt a full commentary, we're going to do sort of 10 minute digests after each episode. And it seems logical to start with the Quatermass experiment. Now, I'm not ashamed to admit that Simon's knowledge of uh, archive TV is much better than mine. So a lot of this stuff I'm watching for the first time. I have never seen the original Quatermass experiment. So this first podcast is going to be 
the surviving two episodes of the 1953 Quasimass experiment and then the remake with David Tennant, I believe. So uh, without further ado, we shall go into episode one and we'll be with you in a second with the review. See you soon. I told you I'd send word if there was any change. I wish to heaven like that. Believe me, Quatermass, I'm trying to help you. The nastier the facts, uh, the more it matters the way they're presented. The whole question of future development... Oh, future development, be damned, tell them the facts. But all trace of the rocket ship was lost over 57 hours ago, when it deviated from its estimated path at 25,000 miles per hour. Okay, so that was episode one of the Quasimass Experiment from 1953. My first impressions, story-wise, it stands up very well, I think. It's a very slow piece of television and very much of its time. But that is definitely of its time. And there are some really nice little character touches in there. So the little old lady whose house gets flattened. The drunk fellow with the the the, the rattle rattle. who's going around telling everybody that they're being far too modest. Nigel Neal's work is full of these lovely little character pieces that don't progress the plot at all, but really help enhance the, the whole storytelling. Are you all right now? You're not hurt? She wouldn't know, man. Never heard a shock. But what is it, officer? Have they started again? Look, is there anybody else in there? Oh, no. Who could there be? All right. <laughs> you know, I was just going to bed, and then the noise came, and that bright light, and... Poor Henry, he scampered under the dressing table. Dear, dear, what is it? Here, get her to somewhere safe. I've got to report this. Has that gone off yet? No, not yet, Marvin. Now, come on. Step, lift your feet up now. The whole, I don't know whether it was shot and recorded live. Yes, it was. I was going to say, it's got a very theatre feel to it, as if it's being performed as as a play. And that comes across. I mean, there's got, there's a lot to be said for... This is only 10 years before the first Doctor Who, and even by that point, editing a TV programme was still quite... I think there were around four edits per half hour. It wasn't very many. Mm. So it's not surprising that it's as technically clunky as it is. What is surprising to me is that it's recorded at all, because the first videotape recordings... were on, I think I'm fairly sure they're only done in the 50s, the, the first live videotape recordings. I thought there had been some experiments towards the tail end of the 40s, but it, it's round about mm. that, that era. But this was this would have been telerecorded. Yeah, it's just... Telerecorded live. I would love to have seen this made 10 or so years later to see what they could have done with it. Again, story-wise, it's in those days they had six half hours to fill and only so much story to do it in. Now, and I'm... I'm I think, did he say that the modern version is only an hour long? It's an hour long special. I think it's a feature length, so it's a 90 minute or something. Yeah, so you could quite happily telescope a lot of that down. Oh, yes, and they they do, and it, it doesn't really lose very much mm. in, in plot terms, and they, the dialogue is, is much tighter. Uh, there, are, there are a few other modern touches that they uh, they give to it, which yeah. we'll, we'll come on and, mm. and see that when we get on to the, um, the feature length. It's interesting. It was... Um, Transmitted on the 2nd of July, 1953. So that's exactly 65 years ago this month. 
good timing by us. There's only two of the six of this first series still exist. Yeah. Now, is there anything in the DVD or in the notes about what the other four episodes would be? I, I know there's no audio recordings. Of... No, but there's a full script. Right. Um, and all three of the Quatermass original three series were released as script books with some production photos in, I think there were Penguins that were released in the, um, the late 50s. Right. And then re-released when they'd, um, the 1979 series came out. Yeah, because there was, on Radio 4 a few years back, there was the Quatermass Memoirs. Yes. With Andrew Keir, I seem to remember. Um, I, I can't remember who did it. Oh, and of course, Hammer um, made it as a, a film. Ah, right. Well, that one, that I've never seen. Yeah. Right. So that I, th- uh, I think the Hammer film came out in 1955, and they did film versions of all three the film of Quatermass 2 wasn't available for quite a long time because Nigel Neal didn't like what they'd done with the film and bought up the film rights himself so that it couldn't be distributed. We'll now move on to episode two. The door of the ship's open, Victor Caroon's just staggered out. I can't imagine what's going to happen next or what they're going to find. I must say, though, the end of episode one, it was, for the time, not a bad cliffhanger, I thought. That was pretty good. Absolutely, and... I think this is kind of the point in the history of television where they were just starting to do written for television stories. Prior to that, they'd been adaptations of plays. So it was very much in the theatrical tradition. Right. Well, onwards with episode two, and we'll see what that throws up. You weren't happy. Months ago, before he went to Australia, I'd made up my mind to leave him. Then when the rocket didn't return, I felt so disloyal. Almost as if I'd caused it to happen. I couldn't bear it. I wanted him to come back more than anything else in the world. And now... Now he's like that. Right, well, we've just had the second uh, and last surviving episode of the Quatermass Experiment. I must say I'm gripped. I want to know what goes on. Well, we'll find that out when we do the... Um... The remake. Yeah. It's picked up the pace a lot it... in, one, in just one episode. It has, and... It, it is a very compelling story. There are some unintentionally hilarious bits in it. <laughs> the, the bit where Quatermass tells one of his assistants to go and check the temperature of the rocket oh, in the last experiment, and he does it by going and putting his hand on it. With the best one, yeah, and what was the other thing? Oh, the, the actual takeoff of the rocket at about 50,000 miles an hour that would have crushed them to atoms in seconds. But, but no, is it... As a story, I have to say, and it's a real pity that the others don't have this Reginald Tate fellow because he is very, very good. Well, how did he die? What did he die of? Um, I, I don't know. I just all I know is that they had to recast for Quatermass Two because he died immediately beforehand. I'm going to have to look at this on Wikipedia before we do the remake because uh, I'm itching to know now. Unless it's in the sleeve notes, we can just um, have a check. There is a fantastically cleaned up and remastered Quatermass box set that the BBC put out a few years ago and it's got a set of sleeve notes by the, written by the genius that is Andrew Pixley. I th- I'm going to say, um, would, would the man Pixley have done have something to do with this um, And it, it, it's well worth a read. And over coming episodes, we'll be doing the, the other two stories, or the other three stories, yeah, with, the, other th- with yes. the ITV one. But looking at this, it's very obviously a, a product of its time. There's one bit where... Fuller Love, the journalist character, apologises on behalf of the press oh, for what, something that one of his <laughs> colleagues says, which... Tips his hat and just more, brushes the carnation in his lapel. Yeah, more than anything dates it. But the, the story is compelling. The acting is very theatrical and lots of sort of 
pieces direct, directly to camera and almost sort of monologues. But the uh, television at this point was still coming from a, a very theatrical tradition. Taking it for what it is, from the fragments that exist now of television from that era, it's just best to watch them as stage plays rather than pieces. Certainly anything to do with, with special effects or anything. I mean, this is, a, again... Um, Last time we we sat down and watched, we had Out of the Unknown, Level 7, which it's a pity we didn't do a, a, a critique of that, to be honest. That was a, a wonderful episode regarding radiation and the effects of a, a nuclear war. But the one thing that struck me about that, there were no, or virtually no, what you would class as special effects. This is exactly the same. There are no special effects in it. There are in the later episodes, and it's a pity we don't get to see yeah. them. And uh, in, in Nigel Neal's autobiography, he was the one that did the, the special effect. Oh, that's nice. Oh, um, so he was quite hands-on with it then? Oh, yes. And I, I suppose there was nobody else to do it. Because I guess the attitude from the set designers would be, well, we'll give you the set, but we can't really... We're not here to do anything else. If you want, if you want a model, then go ahead and make a model. But no, I am utterly gripped by this. I've never seen any versions of this. As I say, I've heard the Quatermass memoirs mm. on the radio, but it only really gives you a flavour of the professor in his old age rather than the actual adventures. I actually first saw this in the, on the big screen in Manchester. It was screened for its 50th anniversary, so 15 years ago. That was my first experience of it, and it has been very nicely cleaned up. Even the fly... The famous sixty-five-year-old, the, fa- the famous fly. Um, oh, so this is a, a fan thing, is it? Oh yes, yeah. The, the fly is quite famous. This stuck on the on the gate or whatever it was that they've used to telerecord it. But I, I now I do not want to know the rest of the story. I wish no. that it did exist, but um, I think we will move on to the remake. But compared to an awful lot of television from the time. The Quatermass series have really good survivability because we're only missing four episodes. The Quatermass experiment was remade a couple of years later as a film by Hammer. So you, you can see the entirety of the story from the, the same time period. And also it had its BBC remake. Which we will move on to now. So let's move on to... When, when was this? 20... I can't remember, but... A couple of years ago with David Tennant. Well, we're in for a treat one way or another, but we'll move on to that. Quatermass, Lomax, MOD investigations. The rocket's ours. That's right. Air is secured. Yeah, the police have everything under control, yeah? Well, how is it? Uh, it's intact as far as I can tell. Are they alive? Come on, Professor, let's have the story. What is that thing? What did it do? It's a spaceship. Why all the secrecy? How many aboard? There are three men. Professor Quatermass, what was the object of this experiment? Stop! Listen! Can you hear it? The tapping! Oh God, they're alive! Well, we've just watched the 2005 live remake of Quatermass Experiment, and it was brilliant. It was very, very good. I'm not quite sure, beyond the swank of it being recorded in the same way as the original, I'm not sure why they decided to do it live. The only thing that sticks in my mind is that David Tennant nearly came a cropper running around a corner in patent leather shoes quite early on, but it was good. I think the story itself, uh, a little bit ahead of its time, really. I'm surprised that certainly the first two episodes seem more or less 
verbatim what they were in 1953. The odd tweak here and there. Yeah, absolutely. And there are modern aspects to it. So they, the couple in the car, mm-hmm. rather than coming from their own home, they, there were chunks that were taken out, like the, the little old lady's house mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. And actually the ending is quite different in this than either the television version or the 1955 film version, in that in both of those, you see a physical creature. The action takes place in Westminster Abbey rather than in um, on the South Bank, and the creature is physically destroyed. Now, I actually really like this version where they humanise it more and they get the three astronauts back and get them to fight internally the creature that they have in part become. So I think that's a really nice way of doing it. I believe there was a technical problem on the night that it went out which meant that some of the separate film sequences that they'd prepared weren't able to be transmitted there are bits of it that just feel a little bit rushed Mm. the bit in the park particularly just seems to to stop and it's not really explained why that's felt to be part of the uh, the investigation that Lomax is doing and that that's gone into in more depth in the um both the, the previous film mm. and in the, the TV series. But for the sake of time, um, I, I guess there was stuff that they had to cut out. In general, I think it does a very good job of staying faithful to the original and updating for a more modern audience. Yeah, some of it was a strange mix of styles. I mean, the reporters in particular had a very 1950s feel to them, which, sweet though it was, jarred with the rest of it. Everybody else was quite up-to-date and modern. Um, the ending, I have to say, it was a bit of an anticlimax. I got what they were trying to achieve. I don't think it fully paid off. When he's, he's in the laboratory smashing it to bits and his hand is just mangled and the severed hand in the park... It's never really explained what's going on. Uh, the part I, I agree with you on the part bit, but I think at the end it would have been better to show a creature and then do all this internal fighting. But it's just there wasn't really a um, a tangible threat in the end, and it was to me watching it fresh. You don't really get that this is what the threat is. It's sort of alluded to, and you have to really concentrate. Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot of David Tennant being seen to be looking at a computer screen. Yeah. You don't see what's on the computer screen. I guess part of the, of the problem is that in 1953, then nobody was expecting much in the way of special effects. Mm. Whereas now, if you were to show a monster, it would have to be an effective-looking monster, and that would be quite difficult to do on the, the scale where it's supposed to have taken over the whole building as a live production. Yeah, and this is where it falls down a bit, because you've mm. got... you. Compromise the ending for the swank of having a live, a live recording. I, I did enjoy it. I, I think it's a, a very good piece of TV, but just the ending did to me yeah. just it, let it down a bit. It'd be interesting for comparison to to have a look at the 1955 film mm. because that's quite faithful to the original TV series, mm. and certainly the ending is more faithful to the uh, the TV series. Whereas there's a physical monster and it's physically destroyed. Yeah. Just, just on that, I just think that would have been a, a better ending, but, um, but not really achievable live. No, probably not. Um, well, not effectively, not to the, the standard that they would expect even in two thousand and five. Yeah. Whereas the next remake that they came to do, which was A for Andromeda, what, um, that that's a a missing science fiction classic from the early sixties. And when they did the remake, it was properly remade non live. 
Yeah, we we can do a, um, a another comparison because there's one surviving episode of A for Andromeda from the the seven that were transmitted, and half of the final episode survives as well. So you can get a, a reasonable feeling of the ending of the story, and then we can watch the the reconstruction. But as a, the story itself, again, quite ahead of its time, you look at the bare bones of it. Uh, there's I could be uh, doing it a disservice here, but I think Event Horizon had a sort of similar thing. Um, a spaceship that went much further than it was supposed to comes back and there's something has corrupted the crew. Now, there are elements of, of ideas in that. Not the It's not the same story, but the ideas have been reused. I think, as far as I'm aware, this is the first instance of, of this idea being used. Yes, absolutely. And Quatermass was ahead of its time. When we come on to do Quatermass 2, you'll see that the very start of that is almost identical to the start of Spearhead from Space. You'll be able to see the next episode of the Quatermass Experiment next Saturday evening at a quarter to nine. An Unearthly Child, episode one, or as Simon prefers to call it... An Unearthly Child. Oh, you mentioned it as a tribe had gone before. No, I didn't. You what did, I, yeah. What I said is that I think of this as two separate stories. Yes. An Unearthly Child as a one-episode story in its own right, and then The Tribe of Gum as a three-episode story. Because I would definitely go with that, yes. That's basically the way that it's structured. Um, the, this is a, a standalone entity, which I absolutely love. Tribe of Gum is a standalone historical, which I'm less keen on. Mm. So I'm very pleased that this is the episode that you've chosen that we'll do. And and it's a nice juxtaposition because we've done Rose, so the first episode yeah, of yeah. New Who. So we're doing the first episode of um, Classic Who. I do like... The other Starting night I watched... He liked Dixon of Doctor. I was going to say, well, the other night I watched Day of the Doctor, which ever since it's been transmitted, it, it's now become my favourite. It's ousted... Caves of Androzani is my favourite episode of Doctor Who. But the opening of it, it was... They more or less recreated the opening of this. Which was a nice touch. Yes, and, and I really enjoyed um, Day of the Doctor. And I love the fact that it got a, um, a theatrical release. Mm. Well, I went to see it at the cinema too. With 3D, it was great. Although they didn't use a 3D as much as I thought. There were... A, a couple of bits that came out of the screen that you, but not as many as I would have expected. I'm not a big fan of 3D films, so I didn't go and see it as 3D. Um, and I, I went to see it when I was living in Middlesbrough, and three quarters of the audience turned up in fancy dress. Oh, God love you, Bill. Now, it's interesting to know, I this is episode one of An Unearthly Child. My personal preference is I prefer the pilot episode, for, purely for reasons of... Uh, familiarity. I saw that first when it was on uh, the Lime Grove Day on BBC Two in the early 90s. So that's been the episode I'm most familiar with. But it's interesting to note that the quality of this is less than the Piles episode. It's a worse picture quality. But won't that be because this was recovered from um, sales telerecordings? Oh, is that? Ah, right, is that it? Um, I can't remember whether this was one that was in the archives when Sue Meldon started looking. 
I'm not sure that it was. I, I know there was very, very little. Mm. And the, the first couple of seasons came back from Enterprises that were, that were sales prints that had come back from somewhere. Can you imagine the mythical status the pilot episode would have if it didn't exist? I mean, that is something you certainly wouldn't ever recover. No. That, that would be lost. Finally, I was so irritated with all her excuses, I decided to have a talk with this grandfather of hers and tell him to take some interest in her. Did you indeed? Now, question being, following on from the discussion we've just had, are they at it here? <laughs> or does it Perhaps take a few trips? explain the discussion <laughs> that we've just had. We just had a very in-depth discussion on a recording break uh, about the relationship statuses of companions. Now, this has been gone to in some depth by Simon, and justifiably, so I'm going to let you explain. Right, well, um, I think it, it's pretty clear, and certainly by the time you get into season two, that in and Barbara are in a relationship. Mm. Um, the lounging about in the Romans the Rome. looks very post Um And the delight that they have to be back in London at the end of the chase together... And the, the way that they interact, it looks coupling. But your theory I have theory to say, at this point, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure that they do. And the other entirely couple from the 60s I was talking about was uh, Jamie and Victoria. Um, because the, the start of the Ice Warriors, where they're on the, the massage chair and he's talking about, would you consider wearing one of those? It, it's very relationship <laughs> stuff. Ah, oh, William Russell. You see, I'd love to have seen... The, again, in Day of the Doctor, they gave Ian Chesterton a nod. He's the chair of the Board of Governors. It would have been lovely if they just had William Russell for a cameo during Stephen Moffat's era, or even the 50th. I think that the moment has passed, and I mean, he's, I mean, he's well into his 90s now. I think he's 93, 94. Mm. And I gather he's sort of given up because he's not doing any big finish anymore, or he's not done big finish for a while. So it doesn't bode well, and that will be a black day when he goes. Although John Moffat was still acting when he was 100. True, true. Uh, and he was a predominantly radio actor. It's not right. Yeah, a nice little bit of preparation for a story that's going to come later, a book on the French Revolution. Yes. Although her saying that's not right does kind of make it sound as though she's already been there. Yeah, it does. Unless she's been listening to her grandfather, because uh, she does say at some point that that's his favourite period in history. But if they left Gallifrey at the same time, wherever he's been, she would have... Unless he's just read a lot. Who knows? Shillings in a pound... 1970, was it, decimalisation? 70, yeah. But there were 50p coins in circulation in 1969. Yeah. Just as a, a starting point for a series, this is bloody brilliant. Yes. I watch this every year on November 23rd. It never grows old. See, Caroline Ford in interviews, I've seen her at conventions and things. She doesn't like being photographed if she's feeling 
not her best. Now, I don't actually know how old she is. She'll be, she'll be in her 70s now. She was 22 here. But again, she speaks really fondly of it, given the fact that it's only a tiny part of, part of her life and she left of her own volition. Um, well, it was a tiny part of her life, but with fandom being the way, way it is, it's now been a, a, big part. a really big part of her life. Have you seen her in anything else? No. Uh, she's in one of the surviving ATV episodes of Public Eye and she puts in a really, really good performance. Mm. Plays a teenage prostitute. and I could bring that some, at some point. The um, Public Eyes are... I'll oh, just put them on the list. Yeah, well, the, the, the television list, archive is growing, is and growing, growing by the hour. Have you seen An Adventure in Space and Time? Yes, I loved it. And I think that's a really good biopic of basically William Hartnell. It's not really... The story of Doctor Who is William Hartnell, but mm. I just think that's lovely. I don't think well, I know that, that, that there's all the all the Verity Lambert. And... Oh yeah, true. And again, the, if you, I don't know whether that's intentional or what, but Verity Lambert and Morris are saying all that's very alluded to. It's all very flirty between them. It is. You watch that again. Isn't Morris Hussein gay? I don't know. I've no idea. I don't know the man. No. I thought he was. Well, it, that's how it comes across on, on the... I may have just done Mr. Hussein a huge disservice, but I... I do know he's wearing terribly well. He's another one. He's just immortal. Well, it's a police box. What on earth are they doing here? These things are usually on the street. It's alive. A sensible assertion from a science teacher. All a bit Frankenstein. Well, I said without quite the mania. Yeah, with the, yeah. Unless it's through the floor. Look, I've had enough. Let's go and find a policeman. Yes, all right. <laughs> Wafting away imaginary fog. How old did you say he was here? Because not as old as he looks. 55. Shh. Really? Uh, I was thinking it's 50. 1908. Yeah, 55. Well, I suppose the, the wig and the acting and everything. Well, yeah, but to be honest, he looked older without the wig. Again, it was said that this was remade. The pilot was remade because he was too... Uh, he was too cranky and, and too spiky. It's not softened an awful lot in this version. No, and, and takes a while in the series before he oh, it starts yeah, softening as well. But again, the whole of this first series, it's really Ian and Barbara's story. The Doctor and Susan are the incidental characters. Certainly, Susan. You can understand why Caroline Ford was frustrated with the part. Um, and I guess everybody else who came afterwards knew what they were getting, oh, yeah. getting themselves into. So when Maureen O'Brien comes along, Vicky doesn't generally do very much. No. Although it has to be said, Dodo still gets the worst writing out of pretty much any character on screen. Yeah, she's yeah. stopping with her auntie. That's the end of that. Bye. She disappears midway through the story and doesn't appear at all. I don't know, Liz Shaw's is worse because it's completely non-existent. She just disappears, disappears. and doesn't come back. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, but yeah, Dodo's isn't great. And Ben and Polly get a fairly raw deal as well. Again, I've not seen the end of the faceless ones. Um... Nobody has for a while. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> I've not heard it then. Dodo, yeah, she gets a fairly raw deal the way she's written out, but she's 
she's not really around very long. She's got, what, four stories? Is that all it is? The, uh, well, not the massacre, really, but the Ark... The Savage? No, that's no. not right. Ark, Celestial Toymaker, Gunfighters, Savages, and a bit of the War Machines. I think they're the only ones that she's in. Well, Jackie Lane, apart from Christopher Eccleston, is the only one they've not managed to tempt back yet. I don't think Jackie Lane's going to crack. Besides which, she is now... She's another one who's in her 70s and doesn't sound much like a teenage girl anymore. And gave up acting years and years. Didn't oh, yeah. she become a, a theatrical agent? Yeah, she, I think she was She was an agent to one of the... Somebody from Doctor Who. As was... Janet uh, Fielding? No, uh, she might have been. And then Janet Fielding became an agent for people like Paul McGann. Because Janet Fielding actually turned up to the recording of the movie in Vancouver. And they were all... The fans were asking her for her autograph before they asked Paul McGann. Big Finish have done an audio called The Beginning. It's a companion chronicle and it's lovely. It's um, Is that the one with Quadringer? Stoin, yeah. And they've tied it in nicely with um, the name of the Doctor when Clara turns up outside and redirects him to a different TARDIS and it's in there. It's just a lovely little bit. Yeah, and uh, Stoin's in three. He is, and they get increasingly... um, The third one in the series, Luna Romana, it's all right, but... um, I've heard all three of them. Yeah. Um, The the whole talk about him not being a, a particularly good actor and being forgetful and, and all of that you have performances like this oh, yeah. that really just blow that argument out of the water I have to say up to, up to a point I never enjoyed the black and white ones and it's clear to me that the reason was because they were in such shoddy condition when they were thrown out on VHS they were in a terrible state and then I saw the seeds of death and it could have been filmed yesterday. The, the clean-up they did on that was outrageously good. And that was what brought them back to life for me. And I started reappraising William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton. So I've, I've always loved Patrick Troughton. Um, William Hartnell, Hartnell to a slightly lesser extent, but I enjoyed the majority of his shows. I didn't have a real soft spot for The Web Planet. Oh, this is the one I just can't... I remember reading an interview with Mark Ayres and he said that he would love to do a special edition of The Web Planet where he, he actually put some atmosphere on Vortis and did some background sound effects because it does sound very dead and empty. There's no effort been made whatsoever. Open the door! Very well then. I'll have to risk it myself. I can't stop you. I don't touch it! How do you switch off the live without getting zapped yourself? Unless that that one switch is somehow immune. That one metal switch. More to the point, why is it there in the first place? I mean, this really is a fantastic set. It's brilliant. See, we were on about Edge of Destruction before. Um, he's desperately holding in a smile there. 
Um, the fast return switch would have circumvented all of this can't get you home nonsense and one thing I've never really understood Mm. is I suppose it can be unexplained away with a magic wand that it's a violent unexpected take off and he's interrupted part way through but they it's quite traumatic for all of them. Oh, I assume that's because she... She was um, poking him about and mm. he didn't get to put the, the proper dematerialisation sequence of controls. Because you never really see it again. No. Not until the Eccleston era, which... Thankfully, they've now done away with. Because it was the only irritating part of the new series and there we get the caveman shadow next episode the cave of skulls which to my mind starts off a new story it does to be fair yeah and that works really nicely as as an introduction as a a little vignette story all of its own It's, and I, it's still one of the most perfect 25 minutes of TV I've ever seen. Yeah, and you can understand why people were absolutely blown away when it was first put out. But to get a repeat the following week, I mean, within a, within a week, mm. could you imagine that happening now? And even pushing it back a week, they still ran out of time for the, uh, to get the Marco Polo sets done. Yeah, so I had to... Um, Elbow in Edge of Destruction. With that, uh, we'll sign off this particular podcast, the first of many, I hope. Uh, Thank you for listening. I hope that you've enjoyed it. We're planning to do more things like this. Um, We're aiming to do a mixture of reviews of full series. We were talking about the Nightmare Man as the first one we were going to do, Mm -hmm. and maybe things like Children of the Stones and some of the Pathfinder series. And we're also going to be looking at what we call wild cards, which is just episodes of old and sometimes forgotten TV series, which in the past has proved to be interesting. Ever so slightly, um, yes. The Corridor People. We I, I love The Corridor People. Mad um, as think, a box of frogs. Oh, yes. yeah. It's, some people call it the Twin Peaks of the 60s, which I think is really unfair because I love The Corridor People and I can't stand <laughs> Twin Peaks. Um, but it is very, very odd. It... it it only lasted four episodes because it's so odd. We'll come on to do some of that. Um, some of my personal favourites, like the the Champions and the Omega Factor and Doomwatch, we will come on to all that fun stuff. Because we met as Doctor Who fans, we are going to be doing some Doctor Who. There will Who. definitely be Doctor Who. Um, but it's, yes. we don't want this to be a Doctor Who podcast. We want it to be a podcast for all the archived television and predominantly science fiction television that we like. With a bit of Doctor Who. With a bit of Doctor Who. Yes, for this we shall sign off and say thank you very much for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it and we'll see you again in the next episode. Take care. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. All featured soundtracks are the property of their respective producers and no infringement of copyright is intended. Title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra and the programme was produced by Maverick Productions.
For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.